episode 341 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we're about to express here do not reflect those of our spouses, our clients, our institutions, our pets, uh, any of our family members, and maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Um, Today, we're going to interview Tim Huang. Uh, he's the author of Subprime Attention Crisis uh, uh, about uh, advertising, digital advertising, and uh, real-time bidding. Uh, he's a research fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Te Technology at Georgetown University. And now, for the news roundup, we've got... Uh, Sultan Meiji, who has more than 20 years in technology and international business, now advising private equity corporations and startups. Sultan, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And Jordan Schneider, who is the uh, host and founder uh, of uh, the unmissable podcast, China Talk. Uh, if you care about what we're talking about here, you're going to enjoy Jordan because uh, he actually knows China much better than any of us. Uh, Jordan, great to have you. Likes. Uh, thanks so much, Stuart. As they used to say back when people listened to sports radio, first time, long time. First, yes, first, first time caller, long time listener, right? Um, and uh, Jordan had, uh, confessed that he uh, he was nervous. Believe me, you're the only person who has been nervous uh, doing this. Everybody else is taking it way too casually. Uh, and speaking <laughs> of which, Brian Egan, <laughs> a Steptoe partner who has worked on national security investment reviews uh, and uh, privacy, and uh, worked at the State Department uh, as uh, uh, the legal advisor, uh, as long as as well as other things, national. Security Council, Treasury. Uh, Brian, good to have you. Thanks, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the host of today's program, as well as Chief Provocateur. Uh, uh, why don't we jump into the stories? Uh, uh, I love this story. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't, uh, Sultan, but uh, um, uh, DeepMind has solved a significant part of the so-called protein folding problem, which I think is a really big deal. But uh, um, can you uh, dehype this for us? Well, first off, you know, I'm I'm the resident AI dehyper, and let me say, I, I don't really want to dehype this at all. This is this is properly an interesting thing, and it shows not just the evolution of artificial intelligence, but doing it in a fairly repeatable way. Now, this is one of the big challenges with AI, right? It's not explainable, it's not repeatable. The black box speaks its truth, and you can never see what comes out of that. But this is really interesting. The 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 contest has been going on for a few years now, and every year. It just keeps getting closer and closer. And, and this year, it's done something really quite interesting. You know, we're, we're beginning to see AI fundamentally alter how primary researches can be performed and what that means long term. It means better. It means more efficient drug development processes, chemicals, manufacturing. There's a bunch of downstream stuff that this now opens the door for. So if I can do my amateur biologist uh, thing, the reason protein folding is really interesting is um, proteins do almost everything in our bodies, uh, and they do it based on which parts of themselves they are presenting to the rest of our body, um, and they decide which parts of themselves they're going to present to uh, the rest of the body by the way they fold, and they all fold differently depending on their structure, but they don't fold in any very, very predictable way, or at least we've never we've only rarely been able to predict it from looking at the amino acid. And instead, what we do is kind of experimentally take them apart piece by piece to see how they're, they're folded. Uh, but every time we do that at great expense, we learn something. We say, okay, this amino acid folds into this shape. And uh, it's a classic AI problem. You say, okay, here are all the shapes and the right answers. Now here are a bunch of things for which we don't have the answers. You tell us what the answer is. What what shape is it going to have once it folds? And it looks as though uh, AI has solved like two thirds of the problems that came up this year. It, it, that's exactly right. And you know, from a from a logic perspective, think about it like this: we're taking something that takes humans weeks or months to do, and a computer is doing it in seconds or minutes. So that's kind of the number one interesting thing. Number two is it's actually coming up with things that people haven't come up with as well. 
And so you put those two things together and all of a sudden it's, it's really altering the ability for us to look at how proteins interact with each other. So the problem is they didn't, it didn't, it didn't solve them all. It doesn't really know how to, to solve all these things. And so it would be really helpful if it wanted some human help on this. It has to tell us how it, how it solved the ones it did solve. And so explainability becomes really important. Uh, and, uh, and so advances in explainability strike me as crucial to, to properly collaborate with AI. Well, you're absolutely right. It's not just explainability, but it's also what we call ensemble learning. So it's the ability for different intelligence systems to interact with each other, right? So maybe it's an artificial intelligence working with a human intelligence, right? That is kind of the, the, the top of the mountain for problem sets like this, where they don't just inter- go off and interact in a bubble by themselves, but you can have a human interacting and then the computer can go off and do some of the easy stuff, but do it in a transparent way. And this is, you know, explainability, Stuart, you're exactly right. This is why AI has had such limited impact in certain sectors. You know, biotech is one of them. Financial services is another, where without that explainability, you can't trust it. So this is going to be fun. And I, I, I think what's nice about this is the experimentalists had actually figured out how most of these acids um, folded, but they didn't tell uh, the contestants. So the contestants uh, gave their answers and the experimentalists said, yes, right, yes, right, yes, wrong. Uh, and uh, AI just, just kicked butt. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and let's be absolutely clear. It's, this is a very straightforward type of artificial intelligence. There's much more advanced stuff coming down the line that, that will be able to not just, you know, do this based on a human saying correct or not correct, but also go off and then check itself. And that's one of the next big things is for the AI is not just to be explainable, but also to be self-correcting. And that's going to be really interesting because then they can look and they can start absorbing all of the other research in a much faster way and then start punching out more work that can then be ver- verified separately. Yeah, although as soon as we, we do that, they're going to figure out a way to learn up, the, to, to, to look up the experimentalist results and cheat. Well, uh, but I, <laughs> oh, oh, see, I thought you were going to go down the singularity path and all of a sudden we were going to have Skynet or something. That's Or they'll just maximize the folding of all our proteins. Uh, all right, Jordan, you are an expert in China. So naturally, I'm going to ask you about Australia. Uh, what? What in God's name is happening in 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 uh, in Australia in their relationship with China? There's been a lot in the last week. Sure. So I mean, it's not really the last week. It's sort of all of 2020. Um, so to take us to take us back to 2014, we had Xi visiting Australia, being uh, you know led around uh, Tanzania and getting the honor of speaking in front of both houses of uh, of Parliament. And starting in 2017, but really in this in 2020, the relationship has soured really dramatically. So uh, Australia, I guess you can say, kicked it off by um, being. Uh, one of the more aggressive countries calling for a very serious investigation into the origins of of COVID. Uh, China didn't take kindly to that. And um, subsequent moves with relation to Hong Kong and uh, statements on Xinjiang uh, have led the Chinese government to start uh, turning the screws on Australia, um, partially, uh, partially, you know, just in relation to their bilateral relationship, but also to send a message to other sort of middle powers that, um, you know, standing up to standing up to Beijing is not the right path to go. So we've seen very aggressive uh, sort of unilateral tariffs on uh, on on the likes of barley and beef and 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 wine, most famously, uh, which have a potential to really impact the Australian economy because uh, a huge engine of its growth over the past thirty years has been exports to China. Yes, um, I thought it was interesting because um, a, the latest uh, um, response from the Chinese was to produce, I, I guess, maybe it's a fake uh, um, uh, uh, picture maybe, or video. Maybe it's just a, um, uh, a video reenactment. But uh, uh, basically, they took advantage of the fact that there was a report criticizing human rights abuses by uh, Australian soldiers in Afghanistan to show an Aussie sh- sh- soldier getting ready to cut the throat of an Afghan child. Uh, completely made up, but designed to say, boy, those Aussies, they're just not trustworthy. Um, 
it really got under the skin of Australia's prime minister. And uh, he started shouting back, uh, among other things, on WeChat. Uh, and WeChat just shut him down, right? Yeah. Um, so just to do it, to do the backstory a little more, it was actually just like a random blogger. Um, I don't know if you've seen those like hyper realistic, like Trump photos of him sort of like on a tank conquering the world. This is sort of oh, the Chinese yeah. equivalent uh, of like a nationalist artist who just paints things to make the foreigners look bad. So uh, Zhao Lijian, who is a sort of low to mid-level bureaucrat in the foreign ministry, you know, he's not the top spokesman, um, tweeted out or I guess, yeah, tweeted out this photo of this you know, random Chinese artists saying like, look at, look, Australia, like you have human rights problems too. Um, don't you dare go about, um, uh, don't you dare go about lecturing us. The Chinese, I mean, the, the Australian prime minister calls an emergency press conference, um, which most people, or I guess, which I thought was a complete overreaction saying, you know, we are deeply offended. This is horrible. Um, and we're not gonna, we're not gonna stand for this. So, what happened was, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, he posted a, a a sort of note on on WeChat calling for Australia to apologize, and WeChat took it down. Um, this is a big deal for a number of reasons. It's sort of you know just as another example of uh, illustrating what everyone knows, which is that having uh, WeChat be a central player in the disc political discourse in democratic countries is something really dangerous. And um, you know, in the past few years, not quite as much in the U.S., but really uh, in Australia, there's been a lot of campaigning going on on uh, on WeChat with this sizable Mandarin-speaking. Um, you know, uh, electorate in Australia of uh, both parties have been, you know, trying to organize and, and push, um, you know, push literature on WeChat. So the fear, um, which is sort of uh, underlined by the fact that uh, WeChat wouldn't even let his his speech uh, stay up, is that the CCP could pressure Tencent to uh, influence uh, foreign foreign uh, political discourse in, in one way or another. So a couple of things are interesting about this. First, this guy is posting on Twitter, which doesn't circulate inside China uh, as a, uh, in any significant amount. So this is all aimed at a Western audience uh, and taking advantage of Twitter's policies. Twitter never took down took this down as uh, as fake. Uh, no, again, I mean it, Stuart. It's not, it wasn't. It's not clearly it, fake. It's yeah. it's it's like hyper realistic art. Which interestingly, like, has a much higher. Um, you see a lot more in China than you do in the West. It's like very out of fashion here. Um, but I think it's sort of a legacy of like, um, you know, Soviet painting. Yeah. yeah, and and they have these art institutes where you know you get trained in this like super fancy um, realist, uh, you know, re realist oil painting. But um, anyways, that was a detour. Where, okay, where, so sorry, how sorry. how long before Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio uh, and Ted Cruz uh, um, demand that WeChat explain their censorship of the Australian prime minister? Because, you know, we've got this dispute going about whether WeChat should be allowed in the U.S. telecom network, and it's going pretty badly for the uh, administration so far. This this is the kind of thing that you would think would change that uh, that dynamic some. I mean, I don't think it changes the dynamic. I think everyone sort of knew that there was content censorship on WeChat, right? And this is just another another example of um, the the sort of bounds of discourse not just being limited in China but also limited abroad. Um, do you want to talk about the uh, the, the Twitter bots? Yes. Uh, I, so it, they, for considering that they don't actually have Twitter in China, they're pretty good at manipulating it. Well, that's also a potentially under debate. So I, I spent a lot of time looking at these past two uh, document or I guess like account dumps that Twitter did when they you know purported to uncover lots of uh, inauthentic uh, Chinese operations. And I found they were pretty underwhelming. Um, but but what a few researchers based out of Israel found um, is that with this Jolly Gen tweet, there were actually a number of, uh, I guess, thousands of accounts which, you know, seemed very bot like only followed one account, um, you know, have a lot of tweets that have no likes to them, uh, sort of boosting this Jolly Gen uh, post of the um, uh, of the of the offensive photo. So this seems to me to be a bit of an innovation in terms of their strategy before they were really posting very sort of not 
compelling content um, and instead uh, sort of taking the tack of like boosting the sort of like S tier trolls in the foreign ministry as opposed to trying to, you know, outsourcing the um, uh, the content creation to folks who are paid, you know, one RM, you know, 20 RMB an hour to make this stuff who really have no idea how Twitter works uh, seems to be a smart move on their part. All right. Uh, uh, well, why don't we move? Oh, I, I guess I should say, because uh, I think it's relevant here, the, the administration's WeChat uh, uh, order is stuck in litigation hell. And the TikTok sale, where Cepheus, I would have thought, has a real hammer and could enforce the, the sale, has uh, dwindled and dwindled and dwindled uh, from giving two-week extensions to giving one-week extensions of the deadline to saying, oh, we don't really need a deadline at all. Why don't we just keep talking and we'll see how it works? Um, a, and increasingly, I suspect that uh, there isn't a consensus to actually pull the trigger on enforcing the uh, CFIUS uh, order. That will be a very big deal from CFIUS's point of view. It, it makes them look like a paper tiger. Uh, but I suspect that it will be hard to persuade the new administration to do more than the last administration did. To, uh, so all we know now is they're talking about uh, uh, the sale. I don't believe, Jordan, you can correct me, I don't think China is going to allow a sale on any terms that the uh, president could celebrate, and therefore there isn't going to be a, a, a sale deal. Yeah, I've heard you make this argument on past episodes and completely agree. Okay. All right. Uh, well, while we're uh, talking, because we will be for a while, about uh, things the Trump administration is doing to China, things that it actually has done as opposed to has failed to do, uh, uh, it's adding SMIC and uh, to uh, the defense blacklist. Uh, that strikes me as a pretty substantial uh, uh, deal. Sure. Yeah. So that's right, Stuart. Last week, uh, the Defense Department actually added SMIC to its list of what it calls Ch communist Chinese military companies. It's a list that DOD is required to maintain under the 1999 National Defense Authorization Act. They actually never publicized any list and we believe never created a list until earlier this year. And just last week, SMIC was added. Because it, it never meant anything. It had no consequences. Right. It had no consequences. So uh, it, uh, there was no point in uh, uh, announcing who was on the list. It's had no no actual sanctions connections until an executive order that President Trump issued in November, which uh, restricts U.S. persons from buying securities of companies added to the list. Now, some will say that still isn't much of a consequence. But not for like two years. Right, Brian? It's uh, it's. Not for 60 days after a company is added to the list. And then there's a one-year kind of grace period where a U.S. person can buy some other U.S. person's securities if that U.S. person is trying to divest. So you're right. It's, it's got a, a pretty long shelf life before it actually kicks in. Uh, it's, but it's, you know, there are a lot of lists floating around in this space. And just to, to reset for a moment, SMIC is already subject to, I would say, a much more significant restriction than this one will be in that a couple of months ago, the Commerce Department, uh, which is in charge of export controls, began notifying all of SMIC's key suppliers that the Commerce Department considers SMIC to be a military end user in China. And this is an important term of art because if you're a military end user in China, then you can't get a number of key key exports of U.S. goods and technologies without a license from the Commerce Department. And the presumption is you're not going to get a license, that Commerce is going to deny the license. So SMIC has been subject to this restriction from Commerce for the last few months. They've also been rumored to be under consideration for various other U.S. government lists, including a list called the Entity List. Um, so this list is yet another list uh, that the Defense Department maintains that is impacts securities holdings in SMIC. SMIC, but some may say it's kind of secondary to the restrictions that they're already facing on the export control side. I don't know, Jordan, what your sense is on that one. Yeah, I mean, it, just tying it back to sort of the broader strategy of to what extent is the Trump administration just trying to kill 
the Chinese semiconductor industry. And, you know, what you saw on, uh, you know, for a few moments with ZTE, but more extensively with Huawei is basically the full court press of stopping America, you know, doing as much as they can to get foreign firms to stop giving them technology. And where that really hurts you is on the, uh, you know, on the higher end, the lower, the, you know, the, 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 the lower nanometer chips. Um, but there still is an enormous, um, you know, lower end of the market, which uh, SMIC doesn't necessarily need the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. technology for. Um, but I agree with you, Brian, that like they haven't quite put the full court press on SMIC and Tsinghua Unigroup. And this is going to be something which is um, which, you know, we'll have to see what direction that the Biden, the Biden administration takes, because there's the, the debate, which is that, you know, a lot of this technology um, isn't super, super high tech and better to have American firms making some revenue off these. They're enormous buyers um, because I guess the money will then go back into R&D, which will keep the U.S. having, um, you know, having its technological um, advantage. And there are debates within the U.S. government on to what extent we should buy the lo- that logic, which, you know, SIA is 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 trying to argue to the world. And, um, you know, it's still very much an open question how far uh, how far the the incoming Biden administration is going to want to push this issue? Well, so they're not going to have too much choice about some of it. It looks as though Congress is going to add to some of the pain for Chinese companies, Brian. Uh, this is this 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 bill is almost certain to pass and is likely to create uh, problems for Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. stock exchanges, right? That's right. I'm hoping to be the first one on your podcast ever to mention the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, or And we have a winner! We have a winner! So the PCAOB is a, a board that was established by Congress uh, in the Sarbanes-Oxley Securities Reform Law about 20 years ago, and it oversees audits of companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges, including foreign issuers. And among other things, this board requires foreign auditors to share information with it. And this has led to tension between the U.S. regulators and a number of countries led, of course, by China. Chinese law actually restricts auditors from transferring certain financial information out of China. And so this issue has long been a dispute between China and the PCAOB and the SEC, which is we, the U.S. regulators say, we need access. China says, you can't have it. Uh, and there's been a bit of a stalemate that has never been resolved. What Congress is proposing to do in this law that has now been passed by both houses, everybody expects President Trump to sign it shortly, is uh, it would require uh, companies that failed to disclose the requisite information to U.S. regulators for three years to be actually delisted from U.S. stock exchanges. Uh, Without any further waivers or flexibility, they would be delisted. And the law actually also, in kind of a, I I feel like a poke in a way, requires companies to disclose additional information about their ties to any foreign governments and to the Chinese Communist Party in particular. So this is definitely going to ratchet up the pressure further on a number of Chinese tech companies that are listed on on U.S. exchanges. Well, okay. So uh, if we're in a tech cold war, the question is how we're doing. and Sultan, uh, there are a couple of things that China is doing to try to break free of U.S. controls to demonstrate that their technology actually is going to surpass U.S. technology. Uh, um, I-, I thought the story on chip design tools is particularly interesting because uh, um, chip design is just about the last thing that uh, American technology uh, companies think they still have a dominant position in. Absolutely. And so electronic design automation or EDA is something where the U.S. has had a, a basic monopoly for generations now. And and in the last six months, we've seen a big push coming out of, you know, CC. CP-sponsored startups to steal senior people from those organizations and try to bring, try to do something domestically. Um, you know, Synopsys, Cadence, Mentor Graphics, that's a huge percentage of the global market, and they're pushing a lot to, to get in there. Uh, last year, with the Huawei ban, it's really limited the growth of Chinese 
tech companies, especially on the hardware side, telco, manufacturing, kind of all the, the heavy lifting stuff that has to happen, that they aren't allowed to get updates of the American tech platforms. And so now they're at a point where they're just going to go off and try to build a domestic capability, which they've been working on for a while with you know groups like XPIC, um, and, uh, which hilariously was actually started by the guy who was running the China business for Synopsys. So go figure, you know, the fifth column exists. Deep, te- you know, deep PRC tech. We're gonna have to come up with some really catchy names for that, right? Um, but, but this is, you know, this is an evolving thing. And as we go into, you know, uh, the the quantum story here in a second, you know, this is again part of that discussion where the Chinese are trying to own the full stack, everything from mining the material to building the chips to writing the software and then deploying it globally in the in the food chain in a way where it can sit inside of their censorship infrastructure. So I'm going to see if I can ask Jordan to come in here and talk a little bit about whether China's export control law plays a role in this uh, uh, because there's a possibility that they will make enough of an advance uh, and then refuse to let U.S. companies have access to the, uh, uh, the capability. Jordan? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is something I think which is, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road um, more than uh, what's going on right now. I don't think there are a ton of, uh, you know, super high end technologies, which, uh, you know, Chinese based, which U.S. firms are really chomping on the bit to get um, get get exposure to. I mean, most of the most of the American investment or the Western investment in China over the past 10, 15 years has been in, you know, high growth industries like consumer, which are, you know, albeit exciting and will give you high returns won't aren't necessarily huge um boons to national security if you are like a group buying site like Pinduoduo or or even uh TikTok with the um uh, you know with the algorithm with their fancy short video recommendation algorithm so it's interesting um the China has has basically on a number of different technology policy fronts been uh echoing or, or even in some cases directly aping what the West has done for instance if you look at their um privacy law uh, in conversations with the folks who were writing that, you know, they, they were looking at California and looking at the EU for models of what they could um, what they could what they could do and sorts of frameworks to use. The same thing with this new um, anti-monopoly pr- provision, which came out a few weeks ago. Um, and most recently with this export control law, which has you know, echoes of an entity list in Firma. So uh, Beijing, Beijing, uh, you know, didn't didn't really need this law to do what they wanted to do. Right. We saw um, uh, rare export restrictions all the way back in 2010 when with, right. with respect to Japan. But this is just sort of another tool to uh, and sort of signaling mechanism to show, you know, we're playing this game too. look at us. We have um, we have some dope tech, as uh, one famous YouTuber would say. And we're looking to um, uh, and, 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 you know, in the in the near future, Future, we're also going to want to um, uh, um, want to not necessarily let the um, uh, you know those greedy Western capitalists get their um, uh, get their get their paws on it. Well, and it makes actually some sense to have all every time they're burned by a, a Western law, uh, they adopt a version of it and use it. Look for ways that can it can be turned around on the West, um, because in part they uh, one of the things I suspect they're figuring is. If they start hurting American companies with these laws, there's going to be pressure to, to stand down on both sides. And that's a victory for them because it means there's less pressure uh, with anti-monopoly or with export controls uh, if they can just persuade everybody that the only answer is um, mutual disarmament. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been fascinating, Stuart, the extent to which that hasn't happened in the past in the past few years. I mean, China, it, you know, Beijing, if they really wanted to, could turn the screws on the likes of Apple, Cisco, Qualcomm. And that hasn't happened um, because they've made the calculation that it's sort of more important to their domestic technology industry to have, you know, the inputs uh, and the sort of ecosystem building effects that, you know, all these all these uh, Apple products being made in China do. So at some point, you know, that calculation may change and they may see it it being more worthwhile to, you know, open up more market share domestically or have a um, uh, or just like force Chinese firms to buy more domestic chips to support the, um, the the semiconductor industry on the mainland. But as of yet, and even when, as you said, Stuart, like it does make a lot of sense to uh, to do this from a sort of like, you know, U.S. China strategic angle. Um, 
the the powers that be have chosen not to go down this route. Well, it, Jordan, this is a really interesting point you make on the ecosystem, because if you look at Intel, Qualcomm, AMD, they all have venture and capital arms investing in domestic PRC chip manufacturing capability. You know, we're talking billions and billions of dollars they've put into creating that kind of ecosystem play. So I think I think you've highlighted that there is a lot more integration at that level than we might see in other sectors like on the consumer side right yeah it's interesting because it's the same rationale that you see with uh, tesla in china right um there are chinese uh there are like pretty solid chinese um electric vehicle manufacturers um but the chinese government has made the calculation that it is more helpful to sort of the future growth of the industry to have the industry leader on the ground, you know, hiring engineers so that, you know, just like what you said with Synopsys, 10, 15 years from now, uh, someone who spent 10, 15 years at Tesla will end up, um, you know, really being able to contribute to the domestic, um, to, to domestic EV industry. Well, has that already begun to happen in, qu- in quantum computing? Uh, uh, the Chinese have claimed that they uh, they have achieved a real stride in uh, uh, what's called quantum supremacy. Although I'm sure that the uh, trust and safety people at Twitter will will shut down that label soon. Um, uh, Sultan, uh, uh, as our dehyper, this uh, is is China hyping its claim to quantum supremacy. You know, I I love that that's my name on this podcast now. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get a business card with that on it. Um, but yeah, I I mean, you, and you've heard me. It's not gonna sell too many before. books, Sultan. Yeah, not at all, right? <laughs> so actually, the, the uh, Tim Huang, who we're gonna interview, is all about dehyping the entire uh, digital ad business. So uh, there's there is a book in it. I'll I'll, I'll I'll definitely come back to this group for my first book title. How's that? Um, but, but on the but on the quantum thing, and Stuart, you've heard me on this soapbox before, right? I, I always say the same cu- couple of things. Number one is, you know, how much can you trust a lot of what comes out of the PRC research establishment, right? You know, it's you know we have this whole issue with unrepeatable research globally based on the back of this that we struggle with number one number two is occasionally they do do interesting things the quantum radar system is interesting this satellite-based communications network they've done is kind of interesting um the thing about this this photonic which is a different type of technology than than you see google and ibm and others using this photonic quantum technology is that it's 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 almost a unique animal nobody has really gone down the same path they have and so we don't really know what they're able to do now there is an interesting subset of this and that this kind of technology is significantly harder to custom to to uncustomize for a single problem set so you know you talk about single use technology devices you know network switches encryption devices things like that this kind of technology is quite good for something like that it does not in any way compete with what Sycamore has done with what, what Google has done with Sycamore, because that is closer to a general use computer. Having a bunch of single use computers is really not that interesting at the end of the day. So that's the second. Well, if you want, if you want, if you want, if you wanted to factor RSA, it might be. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, you've, you've heard me make this point, right? Like that's the first use case they're aiming for. And if they can get to that kind of, um, you know, that kind of scale of, of breaking all SSL in real time globally, then great. That's a that's a real strategic problem. But it's it's a not clear that they've actually gotten there. But it's also, you know, how much of this is real? It's hard to tell because we just have no visibility into it. Okay. So I, I see that Michael Weiner has joined us. Michael uh, has been a uh, uh, expert advisor on uh, uh, all things antitrust, and I thought we'd have a uh, uh, Facebook uh, antitrust suit by 40 some states to talk about. Uh, Michael, we don't quite. Uh, do we know enough uh, to uh, to have a discussion about that or do we have to wait for the next week? Well, we, we can talk about what, we, what we've heard, what we've read, what we suspect. Uh, will it be 30 states? Will it be 40 states? Don't really know yet. Um, seems to be led by New York State's uh, Leticia James. It uh, seems to be focusing on the same thing that, that uh, the FTC is focusing on and the new private suit are focusing on, which are the acquisitions of WhatsApp and, and Instagram and, and uh, Facebook's conduct with regard to data portability and interoperability. The, uh, it seems to be bipartisan animosity towards Facebook these days or opportunities to, to uh, create fame and fortune. Uh, we'll, we'll see when it gets filed. Okay. Uh, uh, 
we'll we'll have you back for sure when it does get filed because I'm guessing that the the mechanics and the details of this will matter a lot. Uh, uh, okay, let's do a quick roundup. Uh, I, first, there's been an enormous amount of talk about uh, uh, the possibility of remote weapons being used against uh, uh, an Iranian uh, uh, nuclear scientist, uh, um, and we haven't covered that because I don't quite believe the Iranians. Uh, so, uh, but it's a story, you know, it, it, it's a great story if you believe them. It's a, uh, and it raises all kinds of interesting robot assassin issues. Uh, but uh, I'm, I don't think we're quite there. Um, Brian, uh, it, there is a uh, uh, forced labor bill that's aimed at uh, Xinjiang, uh, um, uh, Western fir- firms using Xinjiang labor. Um, and we're starting to hear that Apple and Nike and Coca-Cola are lobbying against it. Uh, uh, how much difference do you think that lobbying will make? And, and how focused uh, do you think the, um, their concerns are? I don't think it's going to make much difference. I think there's uh, you're going to struggle to find a member of Congress who is not in favor of additional restrictions on goods and technology from Xinjiang. Uh, as to how focused their concerns are, it's it's really hard to say. They say we've got a great supply. You know, supply chain due diligence is already part of what we do. We think that you're asking too much. We think that the standards are not right. You know, I think that kind of gets lost in the wash when you're talking about should we allow uh, a more lenient standard for goods from Xinjiang? I just don't think it's going to work. So they have the same problem that the uh, uh, that the. Um uh, the U.S. stock exchanges have. There is information. In theory, you could get it. And when they started down this road, you could get a lot of it. And the Chinese government has slowly made it really hard to gather information about these kinds of practices, meaning that uh, the Western companies that may have started out uh, in good faith are increasingly blind and would prefer not to have the U.S. Congress remind them of that fact. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. They're, they don't know where to turn next. I have a bit of a, a bit of a contrarian take. So I spent the past two weeks talking to lots of uh, staffers on the Hill about this about this exact bill, and unfortunately have encountered more pessimism than you would expect given the fundamentals of this. Like, yeah, it seems that. Um, it's pretty hard to be in favor of slavery and being in favor of the U.S. Um, you know consumers using um, what's you know equivalent to uh, you know forced labor uh, goods that have forced labor in them. But there there's a very diffuse lobby in favor of it, and even the bill as it's written currently doesn't isn't isn't all that strong. So there are no penalties involved if you get caught. Basically the only thing that happens is, you know, the 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 goods have to be shipped back. They're not allowed to be imported into the US. There's no name and shame provisions. And the the current um corner of the CPB in charge of enforcing this is a 15-person strong uh, forced labor division, which has only really stood up two or three years ago. And a recent GAO report gave me the sense that they really um, need a lot more resources to be come close to doing this sort of uh, due diligence, you know, to really lay down the hammer on on some firms who are um, who are violating this. So, so two observations about that. Uh, uh, one, uh, this is a um, longstanding and proud Washington lobbyist tradition. As you leave the uh, the bill, you just take out all the stuff that uh, uh, that hurts you. Uh, so that may well be the lobbyists already at work. Uh, and second, uh, I um, I was on a human uh, a uh, uh, homeland security uh, advisory council that just put out a report on supply chain security that actually did recommend exactly what you're talking about, which is more resources for uh, the parts of CBP and uh, ICE homeland security investigations that are in charge of in, uh, enforcing some of these provisions. Uh, yeah, I'm with you, Stuart. Until you see, you know, the fifty hundred million dollar um, allocation to this sort of investigation, alongside real penalties for firms that are caught um, doing business in Xinjiang, uh, it's 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 hard for me to be optimistic about uh, the U.S. Uh, response to um, to what's going on in Western China. And I, it, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this much longer. It's time for one last. Oh, President Trump, you're so you're not bad in, in direction, but you're so bad at execution. Uh, uh, his 
threat to veto the National Defense Authorization Act uh, because it doesn't repeal Section 230 is a classic example of too much too late. Uh, He didn't engage. He didn't turn this into an issue that maybe he could have squeezed into the NDAA, although it was always going to be hard. But by waiting to the end and then just throwing it out as a, uh, a injunction that it had to happen, he uh, uh, he he managed to unite Republicans and Democrats. They're going to pass this NDAA and they're going to dare him to veto it. He might veto it because why not? Uh, and then they're going to override him. That's my prediction. Uh, uh, there is no way you can just say this Section 230 thing should be repealed. Uh, he would have been much better off backing his attorney general who had a whole bunch of more modest changes to make in Section 230. Uh, but there it is. Um, last uh, uh, I don't like could not ignore this. There was an oral argument under the on the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, that happened this week. It's worth listening to, but you really have to be a buff. But what I thought was fascinating about it is the people who've been criticizing the CFAA as being overbroad and allowing for massive uh, and potentially abusable uh, prosecutorial discretion are right. Uh, but they might not have picked the best case to make that argument or the best uh, um, uh, statutory argument. On the other hand, I thought it was fascinating. The U.S. government, the Solicitor General, went out of his way to find very strained and narrowing readings of the CFAA as a way of saying all those hypotheticals, half of them, we've just found a way to read the CFAA so it won't be as bad as the uh, petitioner suggests. So uh, it's a a fun uh, exploration of the way in which the Solicitor General can uh, um, uh, win what I would have thought was an unwinnable case, and they, he may win it. Uh, it's a, it's going to be a close call. So that is our news roundup. Thanks to everybody who participated in this. So let me turn now to the interview uh, uh, with Tim Wong. Tim uh, is a writer and a lawyer, uh, and we'll forgive him that, a technology policy guy uh, who's now at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology and was at Google doing global public public policy uh, on artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, Tim, you missed our discussion of DeepMind and uh, yeah, I was sorry uh, to miss it. Very impressive uh, achievement. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. But what Tim is writing about is the really seamy underbelly of Google and Facebook. Uh, the digital ad market. Uh, uh, and uh, it is fascinating. And it's the source of all the wealth that makes all this other cool stuff possible. The, 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 the cool stuff that's coming on is basically just the, uh, uh, the Tiffany network news uh, system. It's, it's, it's with all this enormous amount of money we're making, we're going to give the, the world a bunch of things that will make us look good. Uh, but the money they're making are from programmatic digital ads. Uh, and so, Tim, why did you start, decide to, oh, sorry, you know, I should say, he's the author of Subprime Attention Crisis, which is the book that got me interested in the topic and that he's here to talk about. So, uh, Tim, how did you get interested and decide to write, to write a book on this? Yeah, Stuart, thanks for having me on the show. So the origin of this book actually is in the years that I spent at Google. So I used to lead global public policy for them on AI and machine learning. And, you know, in my ears there, I think the, the most surprising thing, one of the most striking things that really that occurred to me while I was there was that, you know, for a company that turns over 80% of its revenue from digital advertising, it's surprising how little of it really makes its way into the day-to-day conversation of employees um, and how much of a rumor the business model is within the companies where you talk to some engineers and you say, how do we make money? And they say ads, of course. And then you say, so how does that actually work? And even they really don't know. And so I just got so intrigued by like this, this huge ecosystem, this financial engine that it seems like a lot of people who even work in tech don't really know much about. And so, um, you know, got interested in investigating it and sort of explaining what I found to everybody else. So um, Google and Facebook have managed to turn this into a, a, a money machine. Um, is there a difference between the two and the way they approach programmatic ads? 
Um, there is. So they are often known as sort of the duopoly, right, in advertising. Um, and it's because they sort of dominate their respective segments. Uh, so in some ways, right, Google, not surprisingly, is the sort of number one leader in search advertising, right? Those are ads delivered to you as you use a search engine. And Google being, you know, the primary search engine in the world uh, also dominates the world of search ads. Uh, Facebook, similarly, uh, is in the programmatic advertising business, um, but really they dominate what's known as display advertising, right? So traditionally, this would be banner ads, but more and more recent years, it's just kind of the use of visuals and the delivery of programmatic ads. Why only two? I, I know Verizon tried to get into this. They bought AOL. They, uh, they For a while, they were number three. Amazon may be number three in ads and maybe creeping into contention. But why is it Slowly, that uh, yeah. only, only two uh, companies dominate this field? Yeah, I mean, it's really based on sort of the, uh, I would say, the network effects of the platforms that Google and Facebook have created. Um, really, your power in the advertising world is in part based on how many eyeballs you can deliver. And because Google, for example, as a search engine is something that people go to immediately when they need to search for something online, um, their market power has really uh, created their position in the market. Uh, same thing for Facebook, right? They control a huge amount of the attention online. Um, and both of these companies have really built their dominance based on the fact that um, they've set up products where the more eyeballs there are, uh, it creates the value for even more eyeballs to join, right? You, you like Facebook and Facebook is valuable because other people are on Facebook and that encourages you to join as a user. It also allows you to add your attention um, to their pool of attention that they can sell ads against. And so and I, I, I assume it, kind of, it also gives them more information about you so that they can sell uniquely targeted ads. That's correct. Yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the bet. And in my book, in some ways, it tries to ask the question, you know, is all that data really, you know, what it what the, uh, what it's cracked up to be, right? And, and does it actually help? Well, them let me let me stop you there, yeah. Tim. Let me sure, stop you sure. there and just say because I I think uh, the first question is why is digital advertising growing so rapidly? And the and the sure. presumption is that they know much more about who's seeing the ads and they can really target them in a way that uh, an ad in the back of Life magazine never could be targeted. Uh, and so they are promising uh, measurable results from advertising, which uh, advertising could never deliver. You're suggesting that maybe those measurable results and the, what they're measuring is a little less than uh, than clear. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I, I think that is my position. Um, and, and yeah, I think what you're saying is basically the sales pitch that Eric Schmidt and all of these big tech companies have pushed, um, both in the early days of these companies and, and every, everything up to the, the present day, really. But I think, you know, it's a very seductive argument, but it's easy to forget about all the things that can go wrong in delivering digital ads, right? There's a question of whether or not you're delivering that ad to a real person, right? There's a question of whether or not that ad is even seen, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And then only then can we actually get to the question of whether or not the ad has an effect. And it turns out that every layer, there's a lot of problems in the ecosystem. So this vision of it being better than billboards, right, um, is, you know, a fairy tale that we've told ourselves, but the reality is much murkier. Interesting. So this one of the, the problems here may just be that people were always upset. You know, the, the famous Wanamaker statement, uh, half my <laughs> advertising budget is wasted. I just don't know which half. Right. They, they knew they were getting, they, they were convinced they were getting ripped off. Uh, and Google came along and said, you won't get ripped off in that way uh, if you come to us. And sure enough, they got ripped off in different ways. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, the argument here isn't necessarily that online ads are maybe uniquely bad. They may just be as bad as every other earlier generation of ads. Uh, and we should try to keep that in mind. I think that's important. Uh, that's that's fair because uh, the uh, it, it does make sense if you're an advertiser to say, if I know who I want, I ought to be able to reach them. Uh, and in some ways, it means the people who had small advertising budgets are more likely to benefit than the people who had big ones. The people who had big ones were selling to everybody. Coca-Cola wants wants to sell it to to everybody in America. Sure, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, if you're a uh, plaintiff's attorney who specializes in mesothelioma cases, uh, uh, you're advertising for the 
men and women who've just discovered they've come down with this disease and are wondering whether maybe they should sue an asbestos company. Right. And I think you're making a really good point, right? Because what I'm really trying to make an argument about is about the ad market as a whole. And we do have these examples where ads really do work, right? You gave the mesothelioma example, right? That seems to be a case where, you know, people searching for that search term are really in need. And if you can provide a service at that time, the advertising works. Um, and so it really isn't necessarily that all ads never work. It's just a question of what percentage of ads are fraudulent, uh, never make it to the consumer, or otherwise don't actually have an effect. And, and I guess my claim is that it's a much larger percentage of the pie than we've been led to believe. So uh, let me tell me, uh, this is just scratching the surface. It, it's Google and Facebook making sure. money from from ads is and, and people selling ads, Coca-Cola. Those players have been... I oddly re-intermediated uh, in, ter- in the advertising market. Who are the other players that uh, are influencing how we uh, get served and uh, consume ads? Yeah, definitely. So there's two other groups here that I think are really interesting that are often kind of hidden behind the curtain. Uh, one of them is the world of what's known as sort of ad tech companies. Um, and these are really companies that sit outside of Google and Facebook, um, right? Google and Facebook only sell ads for their own platforms. Um, and for everybody else, right, there is these kind of broad programmatic marketplaces for buying and selling attention online that are facilitated through ad technology platforms and ad technology companies. That's one group. Uh, the second group is marketing agencies uh, that have really played a role in, I think, boosting and hyping up this market, uh, even when the fundamentals are not necessarily there. And, and those are two groups that I think often get lost in the shuffle, uh, but they're also equally important to kind of selling this dream of programmatic advertising and, and the power of programmatic advertising. So the ad, the, the, the second group you talked about, is that mm. basically the guys who used to be madmen? Yes, that's correct, actually. And what's really interesting is that, you know, the, the Mad Men world has largely disappeared. And these agencies, these marketing agencies, they're looking for the next buck, right? They're looking for the next place to make profit. And in many cases, what they've done is play the role in, in helping to kind of inflate this market, because in some ways, the, the kind of traditional Mad Men way of delivering ads really is kind of no longer a reality for most advertisers. But they still get paid as a percentage of what they place, I assume. Uh, That's and correct. that, that yeah. creates an incentive for the price to go up, obviously, uh, That's uh, even, even though they're hired by Coca-Cola or the advertisers. Uh, uh, and so you're, uh, interestingly, they obviously thought that this whole thing was a threat because in theory, mm-hmm. you, could, you could do this on your own and just get a, a few creatives to cut the ads and then let the ad tech guys uh, place them. Uh, mm-hmm. But they have found a way to renew their expertise and to say, you need us as a guide to how you're not going to get screwed when you uh, um, uh, start doing uh, programmatic digital ads. Uh, and, That's correct. And then in the ad tech side, there's kind of this, there's an auction with at least two other players. There's the su- supply side and the demand side uh, uh, platforms. Do you have to have mm. both a demand side and a supply side platform? Uh, yeah, it takes two to tango, right, in these marketplaces. And um, and really, yeah, essentially what's being facilitated in programmatic advertising is the same actors that have always played in the advertising space, right? You have the people who are selling attention, right, we're often known as publishers. And you have the advertisers that are buying ads. Um, and both of them are kind of brought together uh, in the programmatic ad pl- uh, platform, the, the marketplace. Um, and, and, and right, that is effectively how the system works. And what's fascinating about this, of course, is that the, uh, they all conduct these transactions at microsecond speeds in the sense right. that when – when I go to uh, um, a website, uh, if I let's say I go to Instapundit, uh, I at, when I arrive at Instapundit, uh, whatever is known about me is slightly abstracted, and I am offered mm-hmm. for sale. My eyeballs are offered for sale, and people right. bid to say, how much do we want to advertise to this guy? And uh, Amazon says, well, he, he, he almost bought some uh, Ethernet cable. Why don't we uh, pay to put Ethernet cable back in front of his uh, eyeballs? Uh, right, uh, yeah. And, and uh, that, uh, that process happens while the rest of the page is loading. 
That's correct. Yeah, everything that you just described takes place at light speed, right? And and the ad that you're going to see when you click on a link isn't defined until the the page actually loads. And so, yeah, I think what's one of the things that's really incredible about the programmatic advertising system is that it really is a, a feat of engineering, right? To pull this off billions of times a day. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I, I think that that is a really interesting component of it because we don't really think about it on a day-to-day basis. So you have said there is a deeply uh, seamy underbelly to this uh, system mm. and um, people are probably grossly overpaying for their programmatic ads. That's the thesis, as I understand it, of the book. That's correct. It is, yeah. Why, why, what's wrong with this market? What could be fairer than auctions every microsecond uh, uh, to uh, where people can participate, not participate. This is a really uh, microeconomics uh, professor's dream. In fact, I suspect it was designed by microeconomics professors. Uh, yeah, it was. I think one of the really interesting kind of intellectual histories behind all this is that it wasn't actually engineers, right, working in like, you know, garages in Silicon Valley. It actually was economists that came in and architected a lot of these markets. Well, look, so so I think the argument really is, and this is one of the parts that I had the best time, you know, most fun time, I think, researching the book on was if you look at the history of financial bubbles, market bubbles, really, there's a couple of major components, right, that, that kind of are the ingredients that cause a bubble to form. And uh, basically, the argument of the book is that the three sort of major components uh, are in place in the modern programmatic advertising system. So one of them is opacity, right? It's like very difficult to see what's going on and understand the market as a whole. The second one is that you sort of have, uh, you know, what I call sort of subprime value, right? That the thing being traded is becoming less and less worthwhile over time. And then finally, you have sort of perverse incentives to kind of overinflate the market, right? Which is a little bit of what we just talked about, the advertising agencies, the ad tech companies, um, that entire you know, sort of universe and its ilk. And what happens in that case is basically you have a world in which asset prices keep getting pushed up and up and up. Um, the real value is continuing to decline, and no one can actually see that that's occurring, right? And, and ultimately, that kind of sets you up for a situation where you may have a crisis of confidence that really produces, you know, a kind of bubble popping. Oh, so it's it's it, 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 the the reason we can't see it happening is the same reason that Wanamaker didn't know which half of his advertising budget was wasted. Uh, I you didn't know before uh, whether you were getting value, and so if the value that you thought you were getting with more reg- measurement starts to decline, you can't really tell as long as the measurements don't change. That's right. Yeah, we seem to be we seem to be there, right? Because I think that there's there's one really important part of the opacity, which is that like it actually turns out empirically it's very hard to determine the effectiveness of advertising. And there's a great paper from a few years back that basically concludes that because advertising has such a tiny minute effect on behavior, uh, we can we can study it, right? But the problem is that in order to conduct an experiment to figure that out, it's just way more expensive than anyone would ever practically pay. And so we have this sort of weird situation where Wanamaker's principle kind of exists in the 21st century, um, but in part because it's too expensive to know, right? Um, and, and I think that does add certainly a layer of ambiguity as we try to think through, you know, what is this market and does it actually work in practice? But I, I you know, I, I find that sort of hard to believe that you can give people mm-hmm. coupons you know they if, if if when when i i don't i, I don't take advertising but uh, mm-hmm. the podcasts i listen to say you can get a ten dollar ten dollars off if you tell them you came from our podcast and that's a way to to know that your ad actually had sure. produced a customer uh which well, is certainly is, worth mm-hmm. 10 bucks that's right yeah and i think that's that's good it's a good counter argument i think the subtlety that often gets missed is would the person have bought your product anyways, even if you had not advertised to them, mm-hmm. right? And, and what we're finding in many cases, right, is that actually advertising tends to be promoted to people who would have bought the product anyways. And so there's actually this very interesting relationship whereby even though it ostensibly looks like your ad had an impact, it may have not actually made an impact from a causal standpoint. We're, we're confusing sort of correlation and causation here. Yeah. And so at that point, even even the internal marketing director, the chief marketing officer, is deeply invested in the conspiracy. He wants to, he wants these ads to work because you know otherwise uh, his budget's going to go down, and they, they may not think they need such an expensive guy doing uh, That's their right. CMO. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the one of the best arguments I've heard from the ad tech industry on on this book so far has has been basically like, look. People spend a lot of money on this. Isn't that proof that it works, right? And like that is exactly the thing that we've said before every major financial crisis or market crisis. And so I think we have to look at those claims a lot more critically. 
So I, I, your title is um, provocative because it recalls 2008 when we had sure. sub, subprime mortgages that were uh, way overvalued. Uh, there was more and more fraud building up in the uh, in the whole market. People wanted to be lied to, and they were. Uh, and uh, then it all came crashing down. Uh, mm. You suggest that the bubble's going to crash like that uh, um i'm a little more skeptical i mm. uh, maybe this is more like 2001 when pets.com went under and uh, the dot-com bubble burst and then practically nobody noticed who wasn't in silicon valley uh, <laughs> is it possible that that's what's going to happen here well, so we have to think about the difference between those two situations, 2001 and 2008, right? And and one argument for why the mortgage crisis was such a big impact on the economy was because mortgages are tied up throughout the economy. And so really what you're asking is like, are ads you know, more like mortgages or are they more like tech stocks, right? Which maybe other parts of the economy don't really depend on. And I guess I think reasonable minds can differ, but my claim is really, I think that it is more like the mortgage case, right? Because I think we forget about all the things that are subsidized through advertising online, right? It isn't just Mark Zuckerberg having a billion extra dollars. You know, the whole ecosystem of media and journalism rests on the programmatic ad ecosystem. You have all these products that you get for free, right? Google Docs, search engines uh, that are basically subsidized through advertising. Um, and, you know, I, I heard you guys talking about DeepMind earlier, right? That is a lab that's doing cutting edge research. It's paid for by ads, right? So you can imagine a downturn in this market has all sorts of collateral impacts that you might not otherwise immediately think about. And so I, I, I think the impact is actually going to be quite a bit greater than, than you know, pets.com. Well, I, maybe so. And 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 for all those uh, smug Apple users who say, well, we don't truck with that privacy invading <laughs> stuff, uh, uh, $10 billion sure. of pure profit goes to Apple just from selling your eyeballs on uh, uh, Google search uh, uh, to Google. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that's that's a fascinating ecosystem, right? That even the most privacy protecting company ostensibly uh, is, is, is also wrapped up in this whole thing. So if you were thinking about uh, uh, this from a point of view of public policy, what should the government be doing? They, they uh, either about the uh, the abuses in the market, because uh, if this looks like the stock exchange, then there's an argument it ought to be regulated by the stock exchange, like the stock exchange. Uh, or is there something else that ought to be done to head off a crash? Um, so I am a big believer in sort of the, the power of regulation here. Um, and I do think that, again, sort of like the history of regulation and financial markets gives us some traction on the problem. So, uh, you know, in, in the book, this is very wonky, but in the book, I'm like, maybe we need a Securities Act of 1933 for the ad market. And really, the idea there is, can we create sort of enforceable disclosures in the market that create more transparency and, and actually create more credible data in the marketplace? Because the problem right now is it's so noisy and so opaque, it's very difficult to even get a sense of what's going on. And so one belief is you don't necessarily want to be able to tell people whether or not this advertising is good or not, uh, but we should be able to make it clearer for people to know whether or not it is good for them or not good for them. Um, and I do think that there's a lot that regulation can do in the space in terms of cleaning up the disclosure in the marketplace. So one of my friend, one of my friends founded a uh, company called White Apps, which is basically mm. built on the idea that yeah, there's all kinds of fraud, and we're, and we're going to help you find it. So there sure. are people making money doing that. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And the question is like whether or not the kind of piecemeal approach through the private market is a way of doing it, or whether or not we need to take a stronger hand in the space. And and again, I think reasonable minds can differ. I tend to lean on the side of the fact that a lot of the big players in the market are not going to move until you know regulation forces them to move on some of these issues. Well, I know you have to go, but I have to uh, 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 ask one question. Uh, sure. My first thought when I uh, studied this is, wow, after the crash, podcasts and their advertising model, <laughs> which is you know nineteenth uh, century more or less, uh, sure. are, are going to own the world. But no, it turns out like programmatic uh, ad sales are coming to podcasts, not I should say to the Cyberlaw podcast because uh, uh, we don't have ads. But tell me, how is it that you can do these sort of digital auctions with podcasts? Yeah, so really, I think podcasting. I was joking before we started recording that you know, sort of the clammy hand of programmatic advertising is you know working its way into podcasting, and, and I think that people are trying out a bunch of different models on how this would work. But 
uh, I would actually be very much the same as when you kind of load a website. The idea is that you load a podcast and at the point at which it is loaded, data about you is used to inform an auction uh, for the kinds of ads that you'll hear as the podcast runs. Um, and, and that can all be sort of like distributed and loaded um, in the same way that an image is, for example, in the, in the case of display advertising. And so um, they're very much kind of setting up that infrastructure. And I, I think the, the programmatic ad ecosystem is always looking to expand into new channels. Yeah, because uh, if they don't keep, you know, it's like a shark. You uh, you keep moving, or, or keep moving. <laughs> something catches up to you, or you die. Uh, all right, right, Tim Tim Huang, uh, uh, we'll we'll have you back when uh, Congress starts looking at uh, uh, actual legislation to deal with the subprime attention crisis. I'd love uh, to it do was that. A yeah. Fun book, uh, and uh, I learned a lot about the business. Uh, and you know, maybe I'm not quite persuaded that we're all going to die in the bubble crash, but I I I think. <laughs> The bubble is going to occur, and it's going to be ugly for a lot of people who have uh, lived um, golden lives up to now. So thanks for uh, uh, to you. Thanks to Sultan Meiji, Jordan Schneider, Brian Ahern, and Michael Weiner for joining us. Uh, thanks also to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 341 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us questions and feedback, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you suggest a guest uh, uh, and they come on, we'll send you our highly coveted mug. Uh, Tim, I'm glad to send you a mug, uh, uh, Cyber oh, Law Podcast mug. Uh, and we probably should send one to uh, uh, Jordan Schneider as well for his first participation in the program uh follow me on twitter i uh, occasionally well mostly lately um introduce possible stories and ask people to vote on it with likes and retweets uh, uh and leave us a review please um the reviews dried up about a month ago uh so i'm dying to get more reviews so that i can read them if you want to be abusive just be entertainingly abusive i promise to read it uh, uh, and then join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.